Will you turn with me tonight in your Bibles there, if you have a copy of God's Word, to the last book of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, chapter 19, and we're reading the first 10 verses together, please. Revelation and chapter number 19. Beginning at the first verse, we're going to read the Word of God together. I was in visiting with Rachel Quigley. I don't think she'll mind me saying this. And uh, she said to me, I was talking to Robin just during the week, and I asked him, what will we all be doing whenever we get to heaven? And she says, Robin says, that's a question for Roger next time he comes. So I knocked the door, and she opened the door. And the first question she asked me, what will we all be doing whenever we get to heaven? And I have to be honest, I found it a slightly difficult question to answer. I said, Rachel, I'll have a look at that and maybe do a series on it in church on Sunday nights. And she says, you can do that. That would be a good idea. So I hope it is a good idea. And I want to speak tonight about heaven. And for a few Lord's Day evenings, I want to ask some big questions about heaven. Some big questions about heaven. Six questions, as a matter of fact, about heaven. Many that we have known and loved from our congregation and outside of it, connected with our families and friends over the last year, have passed into glory We thank God that many that we know and love that were saved have gone to be with the Lord. And oftentimes we wonder, what are they doing now? What must heaven be like? Well, over the next number of weeks, we're going to try to look at that question and others along with it. So Revelation chapter 19 this evening, and we're reading from verse number 1. Revelation 19, verse 1. And after these things I heard a great voice of much people in heaven, saying, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and honor and power unto the Lord our God, for true and righteous are his judgments. For he hath judged the great whore which did corrupt the earth with her fornication, and hath avenged the blood of his servants at her hand. And again they said, Hallelujah, And her smoke rose up forever and ever. And the four and twenty elders and the four beasts fell down and worshipped God that sat on the throne saying, Amen. Hallelujah. And a voice came out of the throne saying, Praise our God, all ye his servants and ye that fear him both, small and great. And I heard as it were the voice of a great multitude and as the voice of many waters and as the voice of of mighty thundering, saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. Let us be glad and rejoice and give honor to him, for the marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready, and to her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white, for the fine linen is the righteousness of saints. And he said unto me, Right, blessed are they which are called unto the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said unto me, These are the true sayings of God. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. For I am thy fellow servant, and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the Spirit of prophecy. We'll just end there at verse number 10. The question that we're going to ask tonight and the question we're going to endeavor to answer tonight is quite simply, 
who goes to heaven, the inhabitants of heaven. That's our subject for this evening. The inhabitants of heaven, who goes to heaven. Look at verse number one. After these things, I heard a great voice of much people in heaven. But who are they? Who, who are these beyond the chilly waves? Who goes to heaven? Let's pray together. Let's seek the Lord and ask Him for the help of the Spirit of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank Thee tonight for the sense of the presence of the Lord in this house already this evening. We thank Thee, O God, for the prayers of Thy people, even in the prayer meeting, and maybe others have been praying privately and quietly at home, and here we are again to publicly and collectively pray and ask God to send His Spirit to encourage the hearts of His people and to challenge the hearts of the lost. O God, it would be our prayer tonight that every individual within these walls one day will be in heaven and we will worship the Lord together. So, Father, we pray that each and every one might make their calling and election sure and examine themselves and get it settled tonight, this great matter of our soul's salvation. So, Father, we pray for the help of the Holy Spirit, for the uplifting of Jesus Christ, and for the glory of our God. So, Lord, hear and answer prayer, and grant, Lord, the infilling of the Spirit of God. Hide me behind the cross, and glorify our Savior, our Lord Jesus Christ. For it's in His name, and for His glory we pray. Amen. I was watching a documentary one night, and in the course of the program, there was an American Baptist pastor giving something of his story and something of his testimony. And in the midst of his story, he said that not all that long ago, he had been out in one of the African nations attending the funeral of an African pastor. So many things were going on at that service that the individual who was to open the Word of God and preach was only given 20 minutes to bring the Word of God. And he chose for his subject the subject of heaven. And he says he went off like a handbell and for 20 minutes spoke at a rate of knots. It was unbelievable, speaking about the glories of heaven, the grandeur of heaven, the joy of heaven. And he says he was so excited and so vibrant and so joyful by the time he got to the end of his sermon. He says, I wished I was the one that was being buried because he made heaven sound so attractive. It's my prayer tonight that by the end of this meeting, and certainly if the Lord tarries by the end of this Savior series, that you will have a desire for heaven and that you will be excited about what God has prepared for them that love Him. And especially if you're not yet a believer and you haven't trusted in Christ personally, that you will have a taste and a hunger and a thirst for the Lord and that you will experience the joy of God's salvation. Dear friends, tonight somehow we instinctively know that death is not the end of our existence. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 verse number 11 that God has put the world in our hearts. And the word world there could be translated eternity. God has put eternity within our hearts. And somehow we know that this period that we call time is not the sum total of our existence. That's why we have a certain fear and concern about death. 
because we know instinctively that there's something outside of time and sense. Somehow we seem to know that we are more than just chemicals and organic matter brought together. There's something inside of us that's eternal. The Bible calls it the soul. And somehow we know that whenever we leave this world, we're going out into the great eternity. And even those who do not know the Lord and have no interest perhaps in Christian things will say whenever somebody dies that they have gone, they have departed, they are no longer with us. And yet in a physical sense, everything that they were remains. But the principle of life has gone. Man, it seems, naturally believes in an afterlife. Long before we had our English Bible, uh, the mummies of pharaohs in Egypt were buried in elaborate tombs with everything they needed for the afterlife. Things like grain and food and tools and wine and perfume and household items. And some were even entombed with their servants. So that whenever they would reach the world to come, their servants would still be on hand to serve them. They instinctively knew without the Bible that there's an afterlife. And so it is in in other places as well. Non-Christian countries, traditionally, there's a knowledge of the afterlife. 1974, the tomb of the first emperor of China was discovered. His tomb dated back to some 300 years BC. It was discovered in northeast China. And as they unearthed his tomb and as they began to take away the levels of soil and strata, they discovered what they called a terracotta army. Some 8,000 terracotta soldiers, 130 chariots, 520 horses, 150 cavalry horses, a terracotta army. And that first emperor of China had been buried along with that great terracotta army because he feared that he would have battles to fight and face in the afterlife. Is man really any different today? You go alongside gravestones and burial grounds and you'll see all manner of little things placed in people's graves. Sometimes it might be a a tin of beer or a football scarf. And there's this idea that they're out there somewhere, hopefully enjoying the same things that they enjoyed on life here below. Man's destination has been pondered throughout the ages. Buddhists and Hindus believe in rebirth and reincarnation. Muslims believe in the seven heavens. The Native American Indians used to talk about the happy hunting ground. Others speak of limbo, paradise, rest, purgatory, and all the things that go with it. But friends, tonight the Word of God, the Bible, the book of books alone, has the answers to the questions that we have about heaven and how to get there. The Bible speaks many times about heaven. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says that every believer has got an inheritance that is incorruptible and undefiled and it's reserved or kept in heaven for you. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 13 and verse number 12, now we see through a glass darkly, but someday we will see the Lord face to face. Matthew 6 and 20, in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, the Lord Jesus said, lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. 
2 Corinthians 5, 21 speaks about our bodies, these earthly tabernacles being dissolved. And he reminds the Corinthian believers that if that happens, as it inevitably will, we have a house not made with hands, eternal, and it's in the heavens. In John 14, the Savior said, I go to prepare a place for you. He described that place as being the Father's house. And in the Father's house, there are many mansions. Now, most people tonight believe in heaven. And most people feel that somehow they have got some entitlement or some credit to be in heaven. But friends, tonight we need concrete answers. Not mere hope or presumption. The reality is tonight that 99.999, and those nines could go on for infinity, 99.99 infinity percent of our existence will be outside of what we call presently time. We will exist billions of years from tonight according to the Word of God. And so therefore, it's, invi- it's vital to be absolutely sure, absolutely certain that you're going someday to be in heaven. But the question tonight that we want to ask is simply, who goes to heaven? Who goes to heaven? Revelation 19.1 speaks about a great voice in heaven, a voice of much people. But who are the people that one day will be in heaven? Who are they? Well, we need to remind ourselves that not everybody is going to heaven. That's a fallacy. The idea is given nowadays that anybody who has left this scene of time probably will be in heaven if there is a heaven. And everybody nowadays gets buried almost in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection onto eternal life. Attend funeral services and professing Christian churches. Chances are they'll either read Psalm 23, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. John 14, in my Father's house are many mansions. Or Revelation 21, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And it's always convenient that in Revelation 21, they stop at verse 7. And they give the idea oftentimes that the only eternal destiny for humanity is heaven. But the Bible also speaks about hell. And in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 7, the Lord Jesus said, Broad is the road that leads to destruction. Many there be that find it. And narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that go in thereat. So it's a fallacy to think that everybody's going to heaven. And it's also wrong to think that a good life will lead you to heaven. The Bible says it's not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy that He saved us. Romans 3 says there's none in a spiritual sense, there's none that doeth good, no, not one. And then others think that baptism will take them to heaven. There are others who think that communion will take them to heaven. Paul, when he spoke about the Lord's table, said there are some that sit there, and rather than that bringing them to a place of favor with God, they're eating and drinking damnation to their own souls. Some believe that their church will take them to heaven. But the Bible says there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Some have hope that their pastor or their priest will speak a word and get them into heaven. But Acts 4.12 says concerning the Savior, neither is there salvation 
in any other, for there's none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And then others are happy with a mere profession of faith. They have prayed a prayer, and it doesn't really matter what the outcome of that prayer has been, as long as they have some sort of little profession, hopefully that will get them to heaven. But in Matthew 7, again, the Lord says, Not everyone that says, Lord, Lord, shall enter into the kingdom of heaven. There is such a thing, and there are such things, as a false gospel. And anybody that's holding out hope with these things that I have mentioned to get them to heaven, friends, it's a false gospel. Paul said to the church at Galatia, in Galatians 1, verse number 8 and 9, but the we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel unto you than that which we have preached unto you, let him be accursed. If any man preach any other gospel unto you that ye have received, let him be accursed. So Paul was adamant that even if an angel said that they had come from heaven and there was a supernatural being standing in front of you tonight saying that there's another way to heaven other than through Jesus Christ, Paul the Apostle said, let them be accursed. It's a false gospel. Christ and Christ alone can take a person to heaven. The Scripture's abundantly clear, absolutely explicit. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Paul said to the church at Corinth, we preach Christ crucified. We determine not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and him crucified. He said, other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And the Bible presents one God, one Savior, and one way of salvation. There is no hope of heaven outside of Jesus Christ. But tonight we're just going to look simply at a couple of references, three references, a matter of fact. I know that's more than a couple, but three references in the book of Revelation concerning those who will be in heaven. The Bible says in the book of Revelation that heaven is only, first of all, heaven is only for those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Heaven is only for those human beings that are washed in the blood of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 1 and verse number 5. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. And then again, Revelation chapter 5 and verse number 9. They, that's the saints, they sung a new song, saying, Thou art worthy to take the book and open the seals thereof, for thou wast slain and hast redeemed us unto God by thy blood, out of every kindred and tongue and people and nation. And again, Revelation 7 and verse number 14. These are they which came out of great tribulation, and have washed their robes, and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. The Bible is clear that those who find themselves in heaven find themselves there on the merits of the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Those who have been washed in the precious blood and those who have been redeemed by that precious blood, 
whose faith is in the Savior who shed that blood, those are the ones who will be in heaven. The great barrier to heaven, as far as the human race is concerned, is our sin. Sin gives us no legal right to heaven. In fact, sin is that which shuts us out of heaven. Now, sin is a word that's fallen out of the vocabulary of society. Sin is a word as well that is quickly becoming unpopular even amongst evangelicals. We talk about our faults and our feelings and our infirmities and our weaknesses and our imperfections. But we're living in a day where even in church life, nobody likes to talk or think about sin. But if there was no sin, there would be no need for a Savior. And if there was no sin, there would be no need for a cross. The Bible makes it clear that sin is our disposition. The disposition of the human heart is towards sin. Romans chapter 7 and verse number 8. Let me just read the reference to you. Romans 7 and verse number 8 declares, But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence, for without the law sin was dead. And Paul recognizes that the lusts of the flesh and the way that he used to live his life that was contrary to God was because of something that was working in him. Sin is something that's inside of us, a sin nature. David says, I was born in sin, and I was shapen in iniquity. We are not sinners tonight because we have committed sin, but rather we commit sin because we are sinners by nature. Sin is our disposition. Sin is also transgression. First John 3, 4, sin is the transgression of the law, breaking God's law, violating God's law. And the Lord Jesus Christ summarized the law with two commandments. Summarized the two tables of the law given in Mount Sinai. First of all, to love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then to love thy neighbor as thyself. And we have all broken God's law. Sin is also omission. James 4, 17 says, To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. Sin is also deviation. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Sin is also imperfection. All have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. And so sin is described in the Bible many different ways. We've got a sin nature. No matter how hard we try, we fall short of the mark. We deviate from God's standard. We willfully and even unconsciously at times break God's law. Furthermore, sin is universal. The Bible says all have sinned and have come short of the glory of God. But sin is also deeply personal. We can't take comfort in being with the crowd and saying, well, everybody else is a sinner, therefore I'm no different than anybody else. But what about your sin personally? David said as he prayed in repentance against thee, the only, have I sinned and done this evil in thy sight. Sin furthermore affects the whole man. Isaiah 1 says that from the sole of the foot to the crown of the head, there's no soundness in it. 
but wounds and bruises and putrefying sores. Sin affects our walk. Sin affects our actions. Sin affects our thought lives. Sin affects the way we speak. Sin affects the way we listen. Sin affects the way we see things. Sin has permeated the whole of the human nature as well as the whole of the human race. And Revelation 21 and verse number 27 makes it clear that there will be no sin in heaven. So therefore, we are confronted with a great problem. There shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, neither whatsoever worketh abomination or maketh a lie. God cannot allow sin into heaven. And therefore, tonight we all have a great problem. Because we cannot change the past. And we cannot change our own nature. And we can do nothing to atone for our own sins. That's why so many cultures tonight have espoused the idea of offering some sort of sacrifice for sins. Many of the pioneer missionaries, whenever they went to unreached people groups, Africa and the Indies and all sorts of different places, and they found unreached tribal people. They were worshiping something, and they were also offering sacrifice to try to undo what they had done and atone and appease these gods that they proposed to worship. Now, nobody had to tell them that there was a God. And nobody had to tell them that there was sin. The Bible says that the conscience of man bears witness to the law of God written in their hearts. And oftentimes people have offered blood sacrifice and human sacrifice to try to cancel out and make amends for evil acts and reverse the consequences of curses and so on and so forth. Many people in the Roman Catholic Church will flog themselves and beat themselves and draw blood from their hands and their feet and their backs to try somehow to atone for their sins. The Mormon Church used to talk about whenever somebody committed murder, the only way for the murderer himself to be forgiven was for his blood to be shed and poured upon the ground. There's something in us that shows us that our sins can only be paid for outside of ourselves. And the whole Old Testament economy pointed to blood atonement and blood sacrifice. Whenever Adam sinned, God came and took coats of skins and clothed Adam and his wife Eve. It involved the shedding of blood. And then their son Abel took the firstlings of his flock and offered a sacrifice Unto God, he believed in blood atonement. Abraham took a a ram and offered it instead of his son Isaac. It was blood atonement. The Passover lamb was slain in Exodus 12, and the blood was sprinkled upon the doorposts and lintels of the home. It was blood atonement. And then when the tabernacle and the temple and the priesthood were all instituted and set up, it was blood atonement, blood atonement, always pointing to the Lamb. And then whenever the Savior stepped onto the stage of world history, John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. And every individual there that knew anything about the Jewish system knew that this one that had come 
was undoubtedly if he was the lamb would shed his blood. The Bible says in Leviticus 17, 11, it's a scientific fact tonight, that the life of the flesh is in the blood, and it's the blood that makes us an atonement for the soul. Can I ask you tonight, are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? Are you cleansed in the precious blood? Are you redeemed by blood? Have you come to Christ? Have you put your faith and trust in Him and His finished work upon the cross? Do you recognize that the only legal right of access into the presence of God and into the very celestial city itself is by precious blood? The Word of God makes it clear that only those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb will be in heaven. Then secondly, the Scriptures in the book of Revelation make it clear that only those who are wedded as the bride of the Lamb will be in heaven someday. We often say when we're conducting a wedding that the Lord Jesus Christ compared the relationship that He has with His church to a marriage or to a wedding. Jesus Christ has chosen Himself a bride. That bride, His wife, is the church. And the Bible says that Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself for it. Revelation 21, verse number 9, it says, Come hither, and I will show thee the bride, the Lamb's wife. It says in Revelation 19, 7, The marriage of the Lamb is come, and his wife hath made herself ready. And the only people who will be in heaven are those who are joined to Jesus Christ and are part of his spotless bride. Can I ask you tonight, is that you? Maybe you say tonight, well, who is the bride of Christ? Or how do I become part of the bride of Christ? Or how do I enter into this relationship with Jesus Christ? How do I become united to him? Well, Revelation chapter 22 and verse 17, and the scripture text is on the pulpit wall high above me, tells us about the calling of the bride. The bride of Christ is a people that are called out from this world, the Spirit, the Holy Ghost, and the bride, those who are already part of the church of Jesus Christ. The Spirit and the church, or the Spirit and the bride, they go out into this world of ours, and they say, come. They invite people to come to Jesus Christ. The bride of Jesus Christ are a people that are called, called by the gospel, called by the Spirit of God. The work of the Spirit of God in this world is through the church, and it's to bring a people to himself. Back there in Genesis 24 and verse number 58, whenever Abraham's servant went out to seek a bride for Isaac, found a beautiful young woman sitting by a well, he explained his errand. She took him home to her family, and the question was asked to her concerning Isaac, Wilt thou go with this man? And she had to make a choice. She had to respond to the call. She had to say, yes, I will go with this man. And every woman tonight in this meeting, maybe some of the men as well, I don't know, maybe you were asked, will you marry me? And you had to respond in the affirmative and say, yes, I will. I will marry you. 
I'll become your bride. I'll become your wife. I would be honored to do that. Some of us can look back to a time whenever we asked that question. It was one of the most nerve-wracking experiences of my life. I remember going to Elaine's dad. She was at work, and I was going to ask him, and I spent about six hours at his house trying to pluck up the courage to ask a question. I'd never visited there on my own before, and I thought he'd say, what are you doing here? But he didn't. I don't know whether he was playing me like a little fish and he helping out in the farm all afternoon thinking, why is this man not asked me why I'm here? But he didn't do it. And then Elaine came home and I thought I'd better ask him whenever she's in getting her dinner. And it was a, it was a nerve-wracking thing. But thank God she said yes. And if you're ever to be in heaven, there has to be a time in your life whenever you say yes to Jesus Christ. Because the bride of Christ is called. Not only is the bride of Christ called, but the bride of Christ as well is clothed. Revelation uh, 21 and verse number 2, it says, John says, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. A bride adorned for her husband. Or chapter 19 and verse number 8, Unto her was granted that she should be arrayed in fine linen, clean and white. For fine linen is the righteousness of saints. Now the Word of God says that all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And the bride of Christ has recognized that. But she has also recognized that the Lord Jesus Christ gives us His righteousness. And it's like a spotless robe. The Word of God speaks in Isaiah 61.10 about being clothed in the garments of salvation. Or as a lovely old hymn says, in royal robes I don't deserve. I live to serve your majesty. The calling of the bride, the clothing of the bride. Then there's also a covenant with the bride. Marriage is a covenant relationship. Marriage is a covenant union. A husband and wife, they exchange their vows. They promise to love each other. They promise to be there for each other in sickness and in health. They promise to be faithful and devoted. They promise to be there at all times and they enter into a covenant. They enter into an agreement. And the relationship that a believer has with Jesus Christ is a covenant relationship. And it's a covenant of grace. It's a covenant that God initiates. It's a covenant that Jesus Christ is sealed and ratified by His blood, whereby He says, I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and I shall wash away their sins. The Christian tonight is in an indissoluble union with Jesus Christ. But then with that comes the commitment of the bride. Jesus Christ is committed to His church. And the true church of Jesus Christ is committed to Him. The Bible says, Commit thy way unto the Lord. Trust also in Him, and He shall bring it to pass. The bride is devoted to Christ. The bride loves Christ because she recognizes He first loved me. Like the Shulamite that we read about in Song of Solomon. She says, I have found Him whom my soul loveth. But long before she ever looked at Solomon, Solomon looked at her. And with grace and mercy, He drew her to Himself with the cords of love. Heaven must be a wonderful place. There's also the ceremony of the bride. We've read about that tonight in Revelation chapter 19, 7 through 9, about the marriage supper of the Lamb. Any young couple who love each other 
are glad and happy to announce their engagement. Maybe you've got a, a son or a daughter or grandchildren, and whenever they got engaged, they were glad to show you the ring. They got engaged, he proposed to me, and I said yes. And then all of the plans go into the wedding, and all of the hope and anticipation and excitement for a, a long, hopefully, and happy life together. And so it is whenever a person becomes a Christian. They're glad to tell the world that I found Christ, and Christ has found me, and now I belong to Him. I wonder tonight do people look at you and know that you love the Savior? Do they know that you belong to Christ? That you've been called out of this world to be part of a spotless bride? One of the most godly old ladies that I ever knew was a lady from Coleraine. Her name was Annie O'Neill. If she was alive today, she'd probably be about 110 or 112. She lived a long and happy life. She never married. I'm not sure if that's part of the reason why she was so happy for so long. But she lived in a little house in Coleraine. She didn't have a television. She didn't have the internet. She didn't have a radio. She didn't even have a refrigerator. She had what they called, some of the older folk will know, a glory hole out at the back of the house. And that's where all of her, her food went. I tell you, there wasn't much glory about it. And I used to visit this little lady, and I can still remember many times sitting in the corner of a little nursing home in Coleraine. And she just sat there, and she was the most contented little woman. She had nothing of this world's goods. She had a little toy dog that sat on a table in front of her and her Bible. And I would go in, and we would talk, and she would tell me all every time about how she got saved. As a young girl in her teens, walking through Portrush, past the Methodist church, and there was some type of conference on for young people. And her and her friends turned in. And out of them all, she was the only one who responded to Jesus Christ that night. And she was saved for over 80 years of her life. And we would sit in the corner of that nursing home and we would sing together. I'm sure it sounded absolutely awful, but she enjoyed it. And I can remember sitting one day in Coleraine University and I got a phone call from a nurse in the Causeway Hospital and Annie O'Neill is terminally ill. Her family have been called, her nephews and nieces, they've been called to the hospital. And so I dropped everything and I went and there's Annie O'Neill, about four foot eleven, lying in a hospital bed, oxygen on, family standing round the bed. And she used to sing a little song every time I saw her. I once was far away from the Savior, as vile as a sinner could be. And I wonder if Christ the Redeemer could save a poor sinner like me. And I went in and she had her eyes closed and I just said, Annie, it's Roger. And she opened her eyes and she reached up with her little hand and she took off the oxygen mask and she started to sing, I once was far away from the Savior. And one of her nephews was a big bodybuilder. He was standing at the side of the bed he was built like the side of a house. I tell you, he cried like a baby. This little woman, outward man, the outward frame getting weaker and weaker, but the inward man getting stronger and stronger. Praise God, she lived for about a year after that. But what a testimony. And everybody knew there's a woman who loves Jesus Christ. There's a woman who is washed in the blood. There's a woman who's wedded as the bride. There's a woman who's written in the book. You see, friends, tonight, the only people that will be in heaven are those who are washed in the blood of the Lamb, those who are wedded as the bride of the Lamb, and those whose names are written in the book of the Lamb. Revelation 21 and verse number 27, there shall in no wise enter into it anything that defileth, 
Neither whatsoever worketh an abomination or maketh a lie, but them which are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's a statement that is absolute. I think Revelation 21 is one of the most detailed descriptions of heaven. And in the last verse of the chapter, just to nail the point home, the Word of God says the only people who enter in are those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Unless your name is there, you won't be in heaven. God has made it abundantly clear. It's like going to an airport. You purpose that you're going to fly out to America or Australia or Africa or some other place. And the attendant behind the desk says, have you got your tickets? And you say, no, I don't have my tickets. Do you have a booking reservation? No, I didn't make a booking reservation. Do you have a passport? No, I didn't apply for a passport. Do you have an ESTA? Do you have a visa? I have none of those things. You'll not be getting in the plane. It's as simple as that. And you can argue and talk all you like and talk about how many other flights you've been on and other places you've visited. But unless you've got the booking and the ticket and the passport and the visa, you'll not be getting in the plane. And the Word of God's as clinical and as concise as that. Unless your name's written in the Lamb's book of life, you'll not be in the celestial city. Heaven is the Father's house. Heaven is God's dwelling place. Heaven is a place where the Lamb is in the midst of the throne. Now, you wouldn't just allow any Tom, Dick, and Harry to waltz into your house uninvited and sit down and live like a lord in your home and sit at your table if you didn't know them. Home's your place. And heaven is God's home. And we can only get to heaven on God's terms. And if your name isn't in the book of life, the Lamb's book of life, friend, I said tonight reverently, you can forget all hope of ever being in heaven until you know and are sure that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Well, what is the Lamb's book of life? What is this great book that the Bible speaks about? This is the book that records the names of all that have been redeemed. This is the book that records the names of all that belong to God. This is the book that records the names of all who have been washed in the blood and all who are part of the bride of Christ. This is the book that records the names of all those who have put their faith and their trust in Him. And I trust tonight your name is there. It's the greatest thing in all the world to know that your name is in the Lamb's book of life. Do you know why I say that? Because there was a time whenever the Lord's disciples, they came and they were re rejoicing that the ministry had been successful and things had happened and the Savior said, Man, he says, rejoice not that the spirits are made subject unto you, but rather rejoice that your names are written in heaven. God says concerning his people, I have graven you upon the palms of my hands. And just as the high priest of Israel wore a breastplate with all of the names of the twelve tribes of Israel, and it was secured to his heart over his shoulders. So the Lord carries his people on his shoulders. He bears them close to his heart. And he calls his sheep out by name. Maybe tonight he's calling you. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them and they follow me. And I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Can I ask you in closing, will you be in heaven? Are you washed in the blood of the Lamb? 
Are you wedded as the bride of the Lamb? Is your name written in the book of the Lamb? Why not come to Christ tonight? John the Baptist said, and I re-echo his words, Behold, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Look tonight to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone. I trust tonight that you'll give your heart to him, that you'll call upon him, that you'll fall in love with him, that his love will be shed abroad in your heart, that you'll feel the cleansing of his precious blood and the warmth of his embrace and the assurance of his salvation in your heart and soul. If I can help you tonight, or somebody else can, don't leave without the Savior, that you come and make sure that you're right for heaven and for home.